0: We are trying to celebrate the things that unite Christians in a world where it seems that we are a people divided. We are trying to focus on the things that bring us together. The Nicene Creed was a document that was written between 325 CE and 381 CE. So a long time ago, uh, people were trying to focus in on what actually identifies the Christian faith and the, the different core tenets of of belief. So just a quick recap, um, Michael Bird is an Australian scholar and he says, the Nicene Creed is recited by all Christian churches, East and West, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox as the definitive expression of the Christian faith. So we began to, to bring life to this by looking at just those first two words of the creed, we believe, and focusing on the plurality of that. This is not just I believe. but you believing within a community of people that can stand with you regardless of political ideologies, regardless of certain doctrinal uh, beliefs, regardless of past experience and circumstance, regardless of culture even. And we can unite together under the banner of Christ and Christ crucified and resurrected claiming we believe. Now, all this talk of unity is is setting up a talk this evening where we're going to be focusing on God as the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And before we get into the controversies of that, I just want to celebrate with you for a moment the designation of God as creator or as the one who makes, according to Luke Timothy Johnson. He says, this grounds all the other statements of the creed. It is because God, the one, all-powerful Father, is the source of all things that God can also be revealer, savior, sanctifier, and judge of all. And that is something that is beautiful and something that is worth celebrating. However, in our culture, when we talk about creation, we usually, especially within the church, we usually begin to see seeds of division where people have very specific views as to how that creation must have taken place. And as people open up the pages of the Bible, they begin to launch into discussions on how to reconcile faith with science. And these ideas have been toxic throughout, especially American culture, over the last 80 or so years where people are really trying to figure out how God created and, and, and sort of having that as a litmus test of faith. A few years ago, there was a study done called, this is a book actually based on the studies that were done, it's called You Lost Me, and it's about how uh, young Christians are leaving the church. It's not necessarily that folks are leaving their faith, it's that people are leaving the church because they were able to identify a certain number of things that were happening that caused some problems for these young people and they wanted to leave. Some of these issues that the young people, I believe it was from ages 18 to 29, the things that they identified were the church is too overprotective. The church was not allowing people to, um, to explore, to experience culture, to, to think beyond, the bounds of what their parents might have set up for them. The church was cultivating shallow faith relationships according to this study of of these people. The church was repressive specifically with regard to sexuality. And within our culture, this is a a big discussion that's taking place, especially amongst millennials, but by no means is it... um, exclusive to millennials but that repressiveness of the of the church was causing some people to leave the church and its exclusive claims where if you don't believe x y and z then you're out was coming into contrast with people that were now having muslim or buddhist or hindu or atheist roommates and their relationships were with them those folks were demonstrating themselves to be moral good people and causing young people to ask these big questions. The church was also, according to these folks, um, espousing uh, doubtless faith. A faith where you could not have questions or you could not pursue things and people were feeling the weight of that. And all of these factors, perhaps they've contributed more in some churches than others, but they're, they're, they're getting people to begin finding faith in different ways. And on most of these lists, is the church's reputation for being anti-science. The church's reputation for not allowing people to think about Genesis, specifically Genesis 1 and 2, in ways that might cohere with the things that they learn in their university biology classes. And this was causing people to have a crisis of faith and begin to move away. Now tonight, I have two goals for this talk on the creed and understanding God as the maker of heaven and earth. One of those goals is super nerdy. For any of you that know me, you know that I like to talk about the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I know you're probably, most of you are lying in your zeal for the ancient Near Eastern context, but I do want us to look at the Bible in fresh in a fresh way this evening. And I promise that I won't focus just on that because the second goal is gonna be a lot more personal. We can't just nerd out and spend a lot of time trying to figure out what Genesis 1 is saying in its ancient Near Eastern context. We have to move towards application. And I think when we begin to understand God as creator and God as the maker of heaven and earth, we can see how this impacts our lives as 21st century American followers of Jesus. That is my hope this evening. So we're going to begin with the nerdy stuff, so just kind of buckle up and hang with me for a bit. We're going to begin our time this evening by reading Genesis 1. It's long, but I want you to hear it and hopefully hear it for the first time. I'm not gonna throw the words on the screen. I just want you to listen to the sound of my voice, not to become entranced by it or to fall asleep, even though my voice is soothing. It's very, (laughs) that wasn't, that was kind of gross and crackly, but here we go. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters, he called seas. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let birds increase on the earth. And there was evening. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, He rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So one scholar says, effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas. And since communication requires a common ground of understanding, both speaker and audience must do what they can to enter that common ground. This is John Walton. He's a Old Testament professor at Wheaton uh, College. He says, effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas. If I was to say to you, fly, eagles, fly, that would mean something to some people. And on a day like today, when the eagles have flown, it means even more. Thank you very much to the three of you in the room that are bold enough to claim eagle fandom. In the sea of ravens, the other, the other bird that we don't talk about as much. Tracy and Susie have a little, what do you call that thing? It's like a, a little, it's a gecko and its name is Tina. And every time I go over to their house, I say at least to myself, Tina, eat the food. Tina, you fat lard, eat the food some of you are tracking with me some of you understand what i'm saying and where that comes from and the rest of you you need to get on board and watch good good films that's from napoleon dynamite and it's it's a it's a fine feature film there's another thing that i say uh, that tessa at least makes fun of me for saying because she doesn't believe that it's a, that it's a real thing and i have proof that it is i like to say if something is like not cool or something is, I think, stupid, I'll say it's going the way of the buffalo. I looked it up. Urban Dictionary says this about things that are going the way of the buffalo, and I do not recommend Urban Dictionary for most searches, okay, but I've checked this one. Going the way of the buffalo means going extinct or slowly ceasing to exist or function or a martial arts form based solely around attacking, utilizing the head and or trampling an opponent underfoot, such as, some guy just ran through a brick wall, he must practice the way of the buffalo. (laughs) Now you can see even with that, if I was talking to someone that is fluent in the verbiage of urban dictionary, which that would be an interesting conversation, and I was to say something that, you know, I believe to be not cool was going the way of the buffalo, and he was thinking that that meant that he was going to attack underfoot. There's a miscommunication that's happening there. There's certain phrases and things that might make sense to us or to a small number of us, but the only way for communication to take place is if both the speaker and the audience understands that. And if we took those words and transcribed when I go to Susie's house and say, Tina, eat the food, and then we gave that to another culture 50 to 100 to 500 years from now, they would probably have no idea the intonations of, Tina, eat the food, or fly, eagles, fly, or going the way of the buffalo. Communication, effective communication demands an agreed upon set of words and terms and ideas. When we open up our leather bound, red lettered versions of the Bible with our sweet tabs and all these things, we we read as 21st century Americans And a lot of times I don't think that we understand the stuff that we bring to that act of reading the text. I don't think that we understand all of the the cultural baggage that we have when we go into it. And we certainly don't oftentimes realize that underlying this Bible, that makes a lot of sense to us in English because translators have worked really hard with a lot of different manuscripts and texts to give us the best version of the Bible that we have. We oftentimes forget that underlying the Old Testament, at least, is Hebrew and Aramaic texts. And in the New Testament, we have Greek texts that are embedded within a culture that is very far removed from us. Even reading Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Underlying that, Bereshit Bara Elohim. In the beginning, God creates. Hashemayim v'ha'aretz, the heavens and the earth. Underlying that are these decisions that people have made to to translate, and we at times have removed the cultural uh, underpinnings of these stories. Genesis, and this is why people get PhDs, and this is my doctoral level um, information that I'm giving you this evening. Genesis is an ancient story. It's really... Old. But when we approach it in the English Bible, sometimes we forget that, and we forget Tina eat the food, and we forget fly, eagles fly, and we forget going the way of the buffalo. We forget the culture that is a part of the Bible, and sometimes we misunderstand what the Bible is attempting to do. We must begin to read the Bible with ancient eyes. Now, there's a couple things that I don't want to do at this point. Number one is I do not want to mess with the authority of the Bible. What we have is God's word in its wholeness, in its truthfulness, in its beauty, in its depth, in its richness. Celebrate that. What I also do not want to do is to make reading the Bible so stinking hard that you guys leave thinking, what the heck is going on? I give up. But what I do want you to understand is when we approach this text, it's embedded within a culture that's very dissimilar from our own. And if we can recapture some of that, we will begin to understand it in new and potentially even exciting ways. Now, pretend you're an ancient person living in the world and you have no telescopes and you have no satellites and you have no internet, you have no phones, you have nothing except the things around you, and you go out and you stand into the world and you look around at what's going on. How will you construct the world in an ancient mindset? Well, the sky is blue and water is blue, not really the water around here, but in some cases, the water in your pool is blue. And if you look up and you see that beautiful blue sky, you might think that there is water up there. When you read Genesis 1, this is interesting because the, this is called the ancient cosmology that is being described in Genesis 1. It's ancient, and that doesn't mean we should be scared of it or ashamed of it. It just means that it's rooted within a particular culture and time. But listen to these words. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water from under the vault and the water above the vault. The Common English Bible or the New Revised Standard Version actually says, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate the waters from each other. There's waters up there and there's waters down here, an ancient idea of, of the world. And this is just to give you understanding of like how removed we are from this text, even from a straightforward reading of it. If you look here, we've got this sweet little, I love when scholars try to get all cutesy, but look at the little little stick figure there just to, just to get your bearings, right? They've got water down here, but they believe that there's water up here, and there's this crusted dome here, or vault. It's called the rakia in Hebrew. This is a word that's based on a verb. Stick with me here, stick with me here. This is based on a verb where it's, they're spreading something out, and for a lot of folks, it's people working with metal, and they're hammering out something. This is why the Psalms talk about God spreading out the sky. The language that's being used is one of a tradesman who is spreading something out, and in this case, to keep the waters up there from coming down here. Check this out. You guys remember the story of Noah and the boat and the, the flood? It's a crazy story, and I don't know why people read it to their kids, because there's lots of people dying. There's carnage all over the place, but let's just step away from that. When the rain begins to fall, this is how the text explains it. In the 600th year of Noah's life, let's just keep going, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened." There's a rakia up there, there's a firmament up there, there's a vault or a dome up there that keeps the waters up there, and when it rains, the floodgates open and some of it seeps down. This is an ancient mindset. Don't throw stones at these guys, because you wouldn't do no better without an internet or a telescope or a satellite dish. You'd just be looking around thinking, well, there's rain coming from somewhere and there's some water here. I don't know, maybe there's something keeping it You good? You, okay. So Genesis is an ancient story with an ancient understanding of the world. And this is where, if, if this has been like, oh, man, that's, that's a difficult teaching, Josh. Hang on. Hang on. It's, it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better, okay? So just stick with me here. This is also one of many ancient stories. And again, this is not to diminish the Bible's authority. This is God's word, and it is true, and it is beautiful, and it is deep, and it is rich. And if we understand what I'm getting ready to say here, we will see, I think, the the huge meaning of Genesis 1. For an ancient audience, when they read this, this story was radical, not because it told scientific details of how the earth was created, but it told us of who created it. So here, this is, Genesis is a story set within other ancient stories that look very similar to Genesis. One of those stories is called Enuma Elish. Can you say Enuma Elish? Pretty weak, but I'll give it to you, okay? This is a Babylonian creation account that talks about Marduk, who is like the god of the Babylonian people. Now understand, folks, back in the day, there was lots of different gods, but for the Babylonians, Marduk was their guy. And this story of creation tells about how Marduk took his, I believe, great-great-grandmother, Tiamat, who represents uh, a monstrous ocean goddess. He cut her in half from top to bottom and used one half of her and spread her out and made a rakia, and took the other half and made the earth. This is a story where Marduk is asserting himself as the Babylonian God, and he does that through graphic violence by ripping apart other rival gods in half and using their corpse to create. But in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens And the earth, our God, alone, in peace. This story was absolutely radical for an ancient people because what they would have heard was something so different than any other people had at the time. Imagine, I was listening to a pastor this past week, and he was talking about if a Babylonian person and an Israelite person went to coffee, and they're at Rise Up, and they're both drinking their iced caramel lattes, and they're... Cheers in each other. The Babylonian would tell their story of creation, but then the Israelite at, at certain points would say, whoa, 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 what are you, what, what? Somebody's ripping somebody in half and creating a world? No, 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 no. Let, let me tell you the story of how our God created in peace, created for a totally different purpose, created so that we could actually be used in great ways. We also have within this story, it says, now the earth was formless and empty and there was darkness over the surface of the deep. That word there, deep, the tahome, it would have meant something to an ancient audience because this is what people were terrified of. The unknown, the things that could potentially create problems. And remember, Tiamat as the ocean or the sea goddess. There was other stories as well, the Canaanite creation account where it was Baal versus the sea god. These ancient stories had this sort of motif, but understand what God is doing here, just hovering over the waters as if to say, you got nothing on me. Stay there. For an ancient audience, they would have heard some of these things. Now, this isn't totally uh, tied in here, but this is interesting and worth thinking of. It says, now, the earth was formless and empty. In Hebrew, those words are tohu vavohu. Fun to say. It's a party word. If you're at the punch bowl, ladies, and you need an exit from the man who is trying to assert himself. You just say, what's your views on Tohu Vavohu in the Hebrew scriptures? And that guy will probably start to tiptoe himself away. Easy breezy. Tohu Vavohu means formless and empty or confusion and chaos or wild and waste. You see, when God was creating in Genesis 1, it wasn't just speaking things out of nowhere. He has this material that he's using and he's shaping and he's forming and he's moving things around. It's awesome. And the way that the days correspond to one another is even more awesome stick with me if we're looking at wild and waste or formless and empty the things that the days are trying to show us is how God forms the world and then how God fills the world and each of these days correspond days one through three God is separating light from darkness he's separating the sky and the sea he's separating the dry ground and the vegetation I'm out of breath because I'm out of shape and this is exciting stuff He's forming the world. He's answering the problem of a world that's formless. And then, in days four through six, he answers the problem of a world that's empty by placing the sun and the moon and the stars in the heavens, and placing fish in the in the sea and birds in the sky. And, by placing animals and humans. And you can see the correspondence there between day one and day four and day two and day five and day three and day six. And then above all, day seven is God having a kingly rest. For an ancient audience, what they would have seen and what they would have heard is so very, very different from what we see and what we hear and the questions that we bring to the text. It says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from night. This is when God is creating the sun and the moon and the stars. And what's interesting is God, uh, in this text, it says that he creates the sun and the moon. Any other creation story does not have anybody creating the sun and the moon. Why? Because the sun and the moon were their own gods. But in Genesis, no, I created them. I'm above them. I am God over them, and the throwaway line in Genesis, and also the stars, whoa, what, what? We're back at rise up with the Babylonian and the Israelite, okay? And when the Babylonian hears that, they start getting ticked, because in their scheme, the stars meant so much. Marduk himself was the one who was putting them around, and you could tell from astrological things, you could tell where the, the world was going, and you could They were important. And in Genesis, it's like, meh, stars. Now, that is in no way, shape, or form to diminish the beauty and the ridiculous awesomeness of the stars, but in this story, mind you, this is a polemic where they are laying it on so thick. Babylonian gods, you have nothing on our God who creates in peace, who creates alone, and who creates your gods, He's over it all. And then it concludes, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule. In other stories, this is where things really get separate. In other stories, humanity was created to do the bidding of the gods, to be slaves. And they were eventually destroyed because they were making too much noise down there. But in Genesis... God creates in his image and in his likeness so that we could be his representatives on earth, to reign and to rule on his behalf. We have been cloaked with dignity and honor and been given a job unlike any other story. When you set Genesis, this ancient story, within its context, you begin to see things that are for lack of a better word, awesome. And they're not things that answer our scientific longings of, but how? But how was it created? What did it look like? What, what happened? In, in Genesis, I don't believe that those are the questions that are being raised, and I don't believe those are the questions that are being addressed because the overarching story is our God is worthy of your worship, and you are cloaked with dignity and honor and respect. Live in that way. Yeah, but how did God create? Wrong question for the audience in Genesis. It's an ancient story told to an ancient audience living within an ancient context. One scholar says this is what it means for God to speak at a certain time and place. He enters into their world. This is huge. He speaks and acts in ways that make sense to the people that he's speaking to. This is surely what it means for God to reveal himself to people. He accommodates. He condescends. He meets people where they are, and he does no different today. God meets you where you are and speaks in a language that you understand. He does not say, Tina, eat the food. He does not say, it's going the way of the buffalo. He does not say, fly, eagles, fly, unless you understand what that means because God is trying to move you to a different place of transformation through his son, Jesus Christ. In light of all of this, I think there's two things that we need to keep in mind. One, the creed says... We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible and that is a loaded statement but what we need to take away is God created and there's room at the table for people that have different ideas of how that took place. For too long the church has stiff armed folks that have controversial views on the origins of the earth and I want to at least from the creed say there's room for you. I've had too many conversations with young people that say, I can't buy into this because of this, that, or the other thing, and what I want you to see is Genesis 1, the story that it tells is one of God's power. The story that it tells is that God created, and I believe that at least some of those details of how God created might be secondary or tertiary. God created, and humanity, you me, we are cloaked with dignity and purpose. Are we living in light of that? Or have we bought the lie that we're worthless? Have we bought the lie that we have nothing to contribute? Have we bought the lie that nobody cares? Have we bought the lie that we can't possibly be used for God's kingdom? Have we bought the lie that nobody wants to hear me because of my story? Nobody wants to listen to me because of what I did last night or last week or the month before? Nobody wants to listen to me. When you hear the echoes of Genesis 1 in the image and likeness of God you have been created, are you living in light of that? Are you living in that confidence? Or have we bought the lie that we are worthless? The second thing that I think we need to take away from this story is another way you could translate, and I don't mean to push buttons here, but in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth great. You could also say when God began to create, this is how the common English Bible um, begins to, to translate this, and this is where we can really make a turn for application. When God began to create, if we look at this as all past, in, in the in the ancient past and God rested and then he has stopped creating what I want you to see here is the creative activities of God continue to go on when God began to create and he is not done yeah he took a rest on the seventh day like a king should do but he continues to create and he continues to create out of the chaos of your life He continues to create out of the mess that we have made of ourselves or the mess that has been made upon us. God is still active and is still continuing to transform and to shape and to take that ball of wild and waste and to move some of it here and move some of it there and to make a beautiful world in your life. God is still creating out of Your past. God is still creating out of your experiences and your background. God is still creating out of the things that you have struggled through. God is still creating in light of what you did last night or last week or last month. And He's not done yet. And God is still creating in you through Christ. So, fast forward to the New Testament. And this is Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, so then if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has placed their faith in Jesus and said, yes, I will follow you and whatever that entails and whatever that means, yes, I will be an ambassador of justice and grace and hope and peace and love. Yes, I will follow you with every little bit of my life and I will submit to your lordship and whatever that looks like in in your life, that person is part of the new creation God is still creating through Christ. The old things have gone away. New things have arrived. Christians in the room, how new do you feel? Do you feel a part of this new creation? Do you feel a part of the new thing that God is doing? Or do you feel stagnant and old and tired? Claim this stuff for yourself. You have been cloaked with dignity and purpose And through Jesus and through your belief in him and your commitment to him, you are a part of what God is doing that is new and vibrant and lush and beautiful. Live in light of that. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is still creating a good work in you and he will finish it to completion. Do not forget that. My hope for tonight is that for some of you in the room that have placed walls in your life where you say, you know what, Christians are crazy and I can't get on board, maybe today we kicked some of those bricks down. Because when you go back and you read Genesis 1 in light of its ancient Near Eastern context, yep, I said it again, you start to see things differently differently. But for some of you in the room that you've come here and you're not wanting to nerd out, you're just wanting to exist and you're wanting to thrive. I hope what you have heard is life-giving because what we have in our foundational texts and in the creeds that we celebrate is a God who has created not just all of this beauty, but he has created you. And he is still at work in your life. Do not, do not, do not give up on where he is taking you and where you are going. And do not diminish that you, as a follower of Jesus, are part of the new creation. The old has gone and the new has come, and you are ushering in the kingdom. Life, hope, peace, forgiveness. Accept it tonight and live in light of it.